Good morning, church. Rochelle mentioned this is the last in our series of Christmas-themed services, at least until 11 months from now when we start the whole thing over again. It's exciting, isn't it? Uh, There's a reason why traditionally the church has saved this story till the very end, and it actually comes after Christmas. The, The story of those wandering astrologers, the magis, those bizarre pagan characters who traverse their way across the Arabian desert. And the reason is that the sheer chronology of the Christmas story is reflected in the way that we honor that chronology in our services. We like to imagine, I think, when we set up our nativity scenes up on the mantle, that you have Joseph and Mary and the the infant Jesus, all manner of livestock. On one side are the shepherds, and on the other side are the wise men, all peering in on the scene, camels hitched up out back. Uh, That's the visual. But the visual, in fact, isn't really very faithful to the chronology of Scripture. If you read Scripture very closely, you'll recognize that they weren't in Bethlehem at all when the wise men arrived. They were in Jerusalem. This happened some months, maybe even years later. And that makes sense because that long journey across the Arabian Peninsula would have taken them some time. And so we conclude the series of Christmas messages by looking at their account. And we often do it a week or two after Christmas. And we mark it by the celebration of Epiphany. That's the strange word on the cover of your bulletin, Epiphany. Um, you know that word. We, we use the word in the English language. You have an epiphany. It, it means a sudden awareness. It's when the lights go on. And so this is, this is sort of the light going on in, in the minds and in the lives of these wandering seekers. Uh, a word about this, though, and, and about the Christmas season in its entirety. And it's kind of a confessional word from me. Uh, I turned the calendar 2019, and one of the things that popped up immediately in my computer calendar was uh, this is the 25th anniversary of my ordination into ministry this year, which means that I have been in the preaching business for 25 years. And, And here's the confessional part. After 25 years, I've come to have something of a, can we say this, a love hate relationship with the big immovable boundaries on the Christian calendar. Things like Christmas and Easter. And it's not that I don't love the stories. It's that, that each year they're looming there on the horizon and we're left with the question, how do we say something new without it being novel? How do we approach these ancient, well-loved, beautiful texts in a way that's both reverent and worshipful, uh, but also fresh? And as I was thinking about the story of the Magi again for this year, there were two things that struck me. There are observations that come from the text and from a colleague of mine, a man named Mark Buchanan, who's pastoring out on the West Coast. And and the first thing that struck me is how God can both use and and even subvert the, the most bizarre things for his purposes. The paganism of these wandering Magi, for example. God uses it and uses it marvelously. God's innovativeness in planting within these decidedly non-biblical worldviews a series of clues that can lead people to Jesus. Why is that important? I think that's got to be great news 
for this generation and GTA, teeming as it is in all kinds of different cultures and worldviews. The idea that God has left within each of those cultures and perspectives some clue, some sign, some key that can be used to unlock that culture and draw people to Christ. That's the first thing that struck me. The second thing that struck me is that this is not just the story of a group of wise men following a star. It's the story of a star that follows the Christ. In fact, that's faithful to one of the oldest worship songs that we have, one that uh, the music is lost, but the words are preserved in the Psalms, when it says the heavens themselves are declaring the glory of God. That's exactly what was happening on that Christmas event long ago when a star appears in the constellations of the heavens. It, It had me thinking, what is it in my life, what is it in yours, that first declared to you the glory of God? And maybe you have to search back in your memories a little bit to find it. But if you could, try and do that. What was that first moment, that first person, that first song that you've heard, the first story that you were a part of, the the tragedy, whatever it is that turned your mind and your heart toward Christ? When is it that you had your epiphany and the lights went on for you? And I was was thinking about that. I began to speculate, at least, that, that the people who meet Christ generally fall into two different categories. There are those people whom God just surprises instantly one day. He shows up kind of like an ambush ambushed by Jesus. I mean, one day he shows up, and there he is. Hello, the shepherds in the field. I mean, they're like that, aren't they? Just minding their own business, trying to get through the night, hoping that there's not some catastrophic storm that will blow itself in and wreak havoc, or hoping that some predator doesn't creep into the camp and attack the flock. So there they are, sitting there around the fire, having their little chit-chat. Hey, Asher, how's the wife? She's good, good. You know, didn't like the Christmas present this year, but that's all right. But they weren't really expecting anything when the skies lit up that night and the news was announced, for unto you a Savior is born, unto you a Son is given. And it's all happening in Bethlehem, ambushed by God in an instant. And they respond to the news, say, hey, you know what? Let's pack it up. Let's go check it out. Let's see what God is doing in the world. But I mean, here's the key idea. For, for them and for some people, in fact, for lots of people, God just suddenly shows up. It's unexpected. It's unbidden. The glory of God, it's unsought. But there it is right there in your face. And there are people who experience that, and it happens in fresh new ways every year. They're minding their own business, and then they meet someone who tells them about Christ, or they have some, um, some episode in their life that leads them to their Christ, and their heart wakes up. They have an epiphany. They might not have been on some diligent year-long spiritual search, but they hear the news, and everything in them in that moment says, yes. That's one group of people. But here's the other group of people. There are people, and we say that maybe the Magi represent this group of people, who aren't just hoping to get through the night. They can't wait for the night. Because when the night comes... They get out their telescopes and they look at the stars. They scour them. They study the configurations. They consult the charts. They study sacred books. They learn about prophecies. They travel to the libraries of Egypt. 
They, they scour Greek prophets and Hebrew prophets. They go all over the place. Why? Because they are gripped by this lifelong quest to find meaning in life. They have been spiritually hungry for years. They're searching. They're searching for something. That's the other group of people. They're searching, searching, searching. They're not just trying to get through the night. They can't wait for the night. They're minding their business, maybe, but their business is trying to find out the truth that's out there. What is it that's worth living for, even dying for, and they want to find it? So that's the second, second group of people. They're, they're on this lifelong spiritual quest. What I would like to do with you this morning, if you grab your bright blue colored epiphany bulletin and turn to the back page there, I want to lead you through a series of five observations about this well-known part of the Christmas story. Here's the first one. And it has to do with the character of its primary figures, the wise men. And it has to do with that second group of people, those who are on a search for meaning, for truth. The wise men were eagerly searching for something. They might not have said Christ at the time, but they knew something marvelous was happening in the heavens, and they imagined that that meant something equally marvelous had happened on earth. How many wise men were there? We don't know, right? We say three. I think we say three because there were three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We have a hard time imagining that there was a fourth guy there and he came empty-handed. But I don't, maybe there were eight gifts of myrrh and, and 12 gifts of, of frankincense and who knows how much gold. But in fact, we don't know. Uh, the oldest tradition we have is that there were 12 of them. And most of the traditions circulate around the fact that they came from a priestly lineage or a royal lineage. But here's the thing. We know that they traveled hundreds of miles. We know that they would have brought with them an elaborate entourage. This wouldn't have been a kind of a clandestine, skulking through the night sort of secret mission. This wasn't inconspicuous. This would have been pageantry. It would have been a caravan of of camels and and servants and supplies, all of it necessary to make this long, long journey. And when they finally entered Jerusalem, it would have caused quite a ruckus. It would have caught people's attention. This This is a spectacle. The other thing you need to know about these magi is that they were thoroughly, completely, from top to bottom, pouring out of their pores, pagan. These guys were pagan to the bone. That's the culture that they came out of. The word magi forms the root of what English word? Magic or or magician. And that's who they were. These are magicians. Now, their magic isn't kind of a rotary club variety where they're showing up and pulling a string of kerchiefs out of their sleeves or a rabbit out of a hat. This is real magic, or so they thought, and they were steeped in it. They were astrologers. They believed the stars predicted the future and held the key to understanding fate. They were pagan, pagan as pagan gets. But they had this inkling, they had this hunch that there was truth out there. And in pursuit of that truth, they would undertake one of the longest, most dangerous, most arduous journeys of their lives. And they would bring treasure with them because they believed that what they found was worth all the treasure they could give. They had something in their hearts that said, it's out there, let's go find it. That's the first observation. Here's the second thing I want you to see in this story. I want you to see the activity from heaven's perspective and to note what God does here and to what lengths he is willing to go to help people find him. 
You know, God's God's greatest passion is to have people come to see the glory of of what God is. One of the most, I think, important and beautiful bits of writing in the history of the Christian church is something called the Heidelberg Catechism. It, It was used just to help people understand the truths of the faith. And, and, and it unfolds like a dialogue, a series of questions and answers. The very first question is this. What is the chief purpose of a human being? And the answer given the catechism is this. To glorify God and make him known. God is so intent on that, that if somebody doesn't go in person and tell them, sometimes he goes directly, the way that he did to the shepherds. This is a divine intervention. And if there isn't going to be a church that will be the light of the world in certain places, sometimes just God goes out there on his own and reveals himself directly. He's so intent on revealing his glory that if we won't go to the kings of the earth, and like I say, these magi may have been from royal descent, he will subvert that little bit of knowledge they have as as off-kilter as it may be in order to get them to come to him. How many ways are there to God, according to the Bible? Just one. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus. Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven by which men and women might be saved. But here's the thing. How many ways are there to Jesus? How many people are there? And Jesus is using all kinds of hints and glints to draw people to himself. That's the story of the Magi here. Now, I think to be clear, here's what God would prefer happen, that the people of God would be the light, would somehow understand, capture, and reflect his glory, in a sense that they would be the star of Bethlehem. If we could, in the children's nativity pageant, we'd hang people up there, not stars and bright lights. That's what Paul was getting at. If you want to have a look in your Bibles, look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Philippians 2, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. But listen to this, in which you shine like stars in the universe. God intends you to be the star in the Bethlehem story. I mean, not not the primary actor, but the star, the bright light of his, of his witness. People are into all kinds of weirdness, right? We know that. Crooked, depraved generation. But they're looking for something. They're looking everywhere. They open their papers every day and they read their horoscope. And the church tends to say that's bad and stupid and wrong. But you realize it speaks to a hunger that's there. And speaking of that hunger, we're to be the star of Bethlehem. This light shining into the dark places in the world. So that when people follow us, they find Christ. When they look to us, they see signs of Christ. And if we fail to do that, to hold out those things, to shine like the stars, God will use whatever means necessary to get people to him. Here's a third observation. And this is where we really begin to dig into the story. You cannot mistake this about the Magi. They probably had the least amount of the story. They, they were least in possession of the truth, and yet 
they seem to be more passionately in pursuit of it than anybody else. Not the shepherds, not the religious leaders. Nobody came from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Just these ones. You can picture the scene. At least I, I hope you can. I mean, one of the striking things about this legendary group, these magi, famous for all of their wisdom and and all of their learning, is that they're kind of childlike, at least in their naivety. They arrive, they come to Jerusalem, all this pageantry. They're not guarded at all. They're kind of guileless. And they're asking everybody, hey, where is he? Where's this king? We, we've we heard tell of him. Where's the king that was born? We want to see him. We're, we're here to honor him. Where is he? Doesn't anybody know where he is? They're so excited. They're almost giddy about it. Their question finally reaches Herod. And it says kind of cryptically in the, in the text there that, that when word reached Herod, he was disturbed, and Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Here's their naivety. They think that church people are already interested in what's just happened. They think that people have held on to the prophecy now for all these years, who've cherished it, who've wanted this hope to become material, are actually going to be excited that at last it has happened. How simple-minded of them, right? To to believe that people who knew better were actually going to know better. And they forgot that something sometimes happens in the hearts of people who know the truth. Sometimes it makes them arrogant. And sometimes it makes them complacent. And sometimes they just stop looking. Have you seen the king, they say. Have you seen the king, the king who was born? Do you know where he is? Settle down. Don't bother me. We've got to finish our shopping. I'll, I'll make an appointment with you next week. God's people can get caught up in so much and fall victim to the same pressure and anxiety that society itself is victim to this time of year. And we don't shine. And here's where the story, I think, really begins to intersect with us. And sometimes it critiques us. The people who are least in possession of the truth, we're most hungry for it. They're just working on a hunch. They read the stars. They have the sense that God is up to something in the world. They learned about this ancient prophecy, and they thought maybe the two are related. They decided that they will travel hundreds of miles at great expense in order to find out if it's true. The people in least possession of the truth were most passionately in pursuit of it. And here's the corollary. It's the fourth observation. The people who were in possession of the truth, God's people, failed to act on what they possessed. In a sense, there's two groups of people who are in possession of the truth. The first group is that group of clerics, advisors, religious scholars, the academics of the day. They've held on to this for a long time. They knew it. These are the ones that Herod musters back into his court. Right? The Magi, they make an appearance. Where is this king of yours? Do you know where he is? They know right away. I mean, they, they're holding out a little bit. Give us a few weeks. We'll put in a research request. We'll do some time in the library. But they know it's Bethlehem. Of course it's Bethlehem. It's always been Bethlehem. The prophet said it long ago. We've studied this. We've preached it. We've done our Bible studies. We've written articles on it. I'm writing the definitive book on it. The Magi are out there. They're steeped in paganism. All they have is a hunch. The religious leaders were there steeped in truth, and what do they do with it? Absolutely nothing. 
The Magi's have just traveled several months, hundreds of miles, arduous, dangerous, exhausting. They crossed the desert on a hunch. The religious leaders have five miles to travel between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and they can't be bothered. Church, don't miss this in the story. God doesn't so much reward the knowledge in your head as he does the hunger in your heart. It's a dangerous thing to possess truth and do nothing with it. Better just to have a hunch and go on a journey. And I'll tell you this too, I, the Bible doesn't describe them this way, but I bet those wise men weren't youngins. I bet their quest had taken them on a thousand wrong directions before it took them finally on the right one. But God rewards the hunger in your heart more than just the knowledge in your head. It's good to have truth. Don't, don't mishear me on this. Obviously, you want to have truth. But if you're not going to do anything with it, if you can't be bothered to make the five-mile journey to see the fulfillment of the truth you've been holding on to your whole life, what good is it? Better to have no knowledge at all. It's a new year, and lots of people in churches here and churches throughout the GTA are are making promises to themselves for the new year, spiritual promises. Among them, I'm, I'm really going to get into God's word this year. I'm going to read the Bible more diligently, persistently. Why? Why are you doing that? Is it to get your theology good and correct? That's a good thing. Don't misunderstand me. But why? Is it just so that you can correct the errors of others? You can point out a hundred different ways why the Magi were confused and didn't have it. If you have all of that truth and you can quote scripture chapter and verse but don't have an ounce of their passion in your heart, it's worse than useless in the eyes of God. The most brilliant scholars of the Bible I studied with were absolutely bland when it came to their lives of faith. They were secular biblical truth repositories. They held it and it made no difference in their lives. Make sure you're converting your knowledge into some burning desire to get to see this thing that God has done. Here's an interesting little aside. These religious leaders, those who are clustered around Herod there, many of them may still have been alive when Jesus, as an adult, was doing his work in ministry. Some of them perhaps had passed on, but a few of them would be alive. The people with whom Jesus had so many issues in his day would have been these same people 30 years later, or maybe the sons and nephews of the people who came there before Herod. Listen to what Jesus says to them, to these religious leaders. John chapter 5, verse 39. You folk, you study the scriptures. You do so diligently because you think that by that alone you will come to possess eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to find life. Bible knowledge is fantastic. If it's not getting you to Jesus, it's dangerous. That's one group of people that were in possession of the truth, but they didn't do anything with it. There's one other person, not a group, a person who held on to the truth. And this is our last observation. Who is it? It's Herod. 
Now, granted, he's not able to rattle off chapter and verse like the other guys do, but if you have that much power, you don't need to. You just call up the experts. There were lots of different Herods, by the way, um, both in history and in, in the Bible. The word Herod just means king. And so when he calls himself Herod the Great, he's just saying, hey, I'm a great king. Obsessed with greatness. It's all false glory. But this particular Herod, Herod the Great, was notorious for his lavish lifestyle. He lived big. And he was notorious for the paganism of his ways. He had statues for every conceivable god in all the pantheon of religious ideologies of the day. And he was notorious for his murderous impulses because he lived with this nagging, overriding fear that somebody was going to overthrow him. So we know at this point in history that Herod the Great had already killed his wife, three of his biological sons, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and many, many outside of his own family. Why? He perceived them as a threat to his power, and he knew all about the prophecies related to the coming of Christ. In fact, he'd been hunting for Jesus as diligently as the Magi had but for different reasons. He was just as interested as they were in finding him. Where's this king? I want to worship him like you, but I'm going to bring a gift too, a long, silvery, razor-edged dagger. That's what I bring to this Christ. He's hungry to know. He's the same drive, but it's not a hunger to worship. It's to size up his rival and deal with him decisively. Two groups. The story of the religious rulers, the senior pastors from all over Israel. I admit that that feels some days like a rebuke to me. Richard, what are you doing with all of this knowledge that you're accumulating? Are you thinking that just because you know a bunch of stuff about Jesus, that's the same as worshiping him? That's the first rebuke. But the second one is this that maybe I have a little bit of Herod in me. And I don't know, I'm thinking you might too. Not that we're out to kill Christ, but you can't both sit on the throne of your own life and have Jesus sit there as well. You can't rule over your own life and then say Jesus will have lordship in your life as well. You can't be the possessor of your possessions and have Jesus as the possessor of them too. It's got to be one or the other. It's not both. And in our hearts, we often set up Jesus not as the Lord, but as the rival for our kingdom. You say, you can rule as long as it's okay with me and you don't encroach on these areas of my life where I've decided I still sit on the throne. I'm stunned, honestly, year after year by how many people in churches will go outside, for example, outside of their marriage to pursue another relationship. As I probe those stories, there's always this sense that somehow I thought I was going to be the exception and that it would be okay if Jesus weren't sitting on the throne in that area of my life. I'm stunned by the low level of giving in the Canadian church, by how many people have said to Jesus, I'm going to be Lord of this, okay? Thank you very much. I'll call on you when I need you for something else. I'm stunned, except I'm not. 
because I have a little bit of Herod in me as well. Jesus, I'll be in charge unless I say otherwise, and then I'll let you be in charge unless you're not doing a good job, and then I'll take over the reins again. Something at least that we can say about Herod is this, that he got it for all his depravity and all of his malice, for all the narrowness and bitterness and paranoia, he understood this. You cannot both be a king and have a king. You can't both be on the throne and put him on the throne. It's got to be one or the other, or you'll destroy your rival. Most of us are going to try and work out some sort of coalition. Don't go there. Don't go there. It's interesting, and this is just be our last thought here. For all the things that we could say about Herod, he actually winds up giving the best piece of advice in the whole story. Listen to what he says. Go and make a careful search for the child. And when you find him, report back so that I can go and worship as well. Now he's lying, of course. He's going there with a dagger in his cloak, but it's still good advice. It's an odd thing to take a bad man's words and say, church, you need to heed him on this one. But that's exactly what we're going to do. Pay attention to what Herod is saying here. Go and make a careful search for Christ. If you're steeped in truth, but it's been a while since you did something with all that knowledge, go and make a careful search. If you're steeped in a whole bunch of confusing ideas about God and it doesn't quite make sense, or you know somebody who is, don't get all twisted up about trying to get their theology absolutely correct at first. Just get them in touch with Jesus. Go and make a careful search for the child. Because it's in seeing Christ that everything else starts to come into clearer focus. He is, he is the one thing that's worth that long and arduous journey. The one thing that really satisfies that hunch that you may have had all along that there is meaning and purpose to your life. The one thing that, that lights up and makes alive all that truth and knowledge that you may have accumulated. The one thing that, that's worthy of the gifts that you might give. The one who, who may call you, if necessary, to defy a king for his sake, which is what these wise men do. The one thing who, for his sake, it's worth taking the long way back, which is exactly what they do. They will inconvenience themselves however is necessary for the sake of Christ because this is God's dream come true. Unto you a Savior has been born, and unto you a King has been given. I'm going to pray for us, and then it will be our privilege to meet together around the King's table. Let's pray. God, there is truth here in this story. And for some of us, it's, it's difficult truth. We've been holding on to a faith based more on knowledge than worship. Or for some, we've greeted others who are trying to make their way towards truth with arrogance or complacency. But we don't want that to be us, not, not this year. Not in 2019. We want to be able to shine, Lord. Not for our own glory, but like the moon to capture and reflect the bright light of 
of the Son. People look at us. We want them to see your Son. We want to be the signposts and markers in this world to point people towards you. Let that be our hope for the year and for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.